0: This episode is brought to you by Nadex, the binary options exchange. Binary options let you limit your risk and trade stock indices, commodities, forex, and more from a single account. Nadex is a CFTC-regulated exchange with transparency, free market data, and fairness guaranteed. The future of trading is here now at NADEX.com. Futures, options, and swaps trading involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors.
1: Manufacturing, what does it look like these days? dying or on the cusp of a renaissance that's what we'll try to take apart this week
2: does anyone else pronounce it renaissance or is that just you dan
1: i think it's to do with that convict ship
2: hi and welcome back to bloomberg benchmark a podcast about the global economy it is thursday november 5th i'm tori stillwell an economics reporter with bloomberg news in washington dc And I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts, Dan Moss, our Executive Editor for International Economics Coverage, who is in New York today, and Aki Ito, our Editor for Benchmark in San Francisco. Hello. Hi. Hey, guys. So, Dan, I was scouring the internet one day when I see this great article about how the Australian accent is a result of, like, you guys drinking too much when you first settled (laughs) Australia. And that you guys speak with just two-thirds capacity, with one-third of your, like, mouth muscles sedentary.
1: There's a couple of versions of that. One is that this is the kind of English that convicts spoke in the late 18th century. The other version is when the first male convict ship arrived a few days before the first female convict ship, they were all going crazy. Then when the first female convict ship arrived to join the first male convict ship, there was this massive, massive night with rum and nothing was ever the same again. It's fair to say that some of the first European Australians were conceived that night.
3: That's an incredible
2: story. Well, moving on. I guess this is sort of related. Let's talk
3: about babies.
1: Oh, yes.
3: This was the first piece of news I saw when I woke up on Thursday morning last week, and I was so stunned, I think I audibly gasped. China got rid of its one-child policy last week, so now Chinese families are allowed to have up to two kids. And this is a big deal because, like we
2: mentioned in our in our China episode a few weeks back, um, our guest, Kenneth Lieberthal, mentioned the one-child policy as Part of the reason why their, their population growth has been slowing and why uh, that, that's fed into overall growth of their economy.
1: Population growth is slowing, but what's happening with the part of the population that's in the workforce, that has, in certain age groups, already begun to contract And it's really consistent with one of the things Ken told us that day, which is this image we've had for a long time of China as this giant, giant, giant pool of workers. It's really increasingly less true. In some ways, that policy became too successful for its own good because as the population has slowed and the working age population has shrunk, Wages in China actually have been increasing, and for many manufacturing jobs, it just doesn't make sense to be in China anymore. There are other places you can go.
2: Yeah, and from my perch on our economic indicators team, the week has been dominated by manufacturing data, and that leads nicely into our topic for today's show.
1: Sure does. On this show, we've talked in previous episodes about the stronger dollar. We've talked about China. We've even talked about robots are doing to your job. We've touched on all these topics that affect the manufacturing sector without talking and devoting a show to, well, manufacturing itself. What does it look like these days? Dying or on the cusp of a renaissance? That's what we'll try to take apart this week.
2: Does anyone else pronounce it renaissance or is that just you, Dan?
1: I think it's to do with that convict ship. (laughs)
3: Well, hopefully by the end of this episode, we'll have answered this question of... Whether manufacturing even matters for an economy like ours, for an an advanced post-industrialized economy, I think some of our listeners will be listening to this and think, gosh, I'm a teacher or a firefighter or a lawyer or an app developer, and manufacturing just sounds so 20th century. So we'll be digging into this question as well.
2: And we will also have a very special guest to tell us a little bit more about it at the bottom of the show, so stay tuned there. But first things first, let's run through what the manufacturing data are saying currently. So this week we got a couple big pieces of news, and I want everyone to put on their nerd caps for a second. Mine is always on when talking about economic indicators. But among the first data points that we get on the economy every month is actually concentrated on manufacturing. It's called the Institute for Supply Management Manufacturing Survey, and that name is so boring, but the information that it has is very interesting. Basically, these are just comments from purchasing managers in manufacturing, and you're probably wondering what a purchasing manager is. Uh, Factories need a lot of supplies to make what they make, and purchasing managers are in charge of making sure they have those supplies. So if managers think there's going to be a pickup in demand for whatever the factory makes, whatever widgets they produce, they're going to be making sure that they have ordered more raw materials that they need to make them. If they think there's going to be a slowdown, they're going to they're going to trail off their orders for those raw materials. So these people are really at the helm of being able to monitor factory activity.
3: So it's a leading indicator. Exactly.
2: And the data goes back to 1941. So we've got a lot of history to work with, which is crucial for economic indicators. Every month, they mail out this questionnaire to hundreds of their members in about 20 industries. These are, you know, textiles, leather, plastics producers, and they ask them all these questions and all these, like, wonky things that economists want to get super specific information on. But the broad overarching index, it compiles the most important parts of that survey. That's the number that we, we really like to look at first. And that index was little changed at 5014 for. October after 50.2 in September.
3: So a number over 50 means that it's expanding, right? Exactly. It's good that it's over 50, but it's basically kind of neutral.
2: To give you guys a little bit more context, this main index was at 58.1 in August of last year. And that was right when the dollar started to go off on a tear. And there's been a few swings, but for the most part, it's just been a straight line down ever since then. I think the good news about last month's number was a lot of people thought that it was going to dip below that 50 threshold, Aki. They thought it was going to dip into contractionary territory. Mm. That would have been very worrisome, but it kind of it held on. So that was actually a, a small positive thing. Right.
3: I guess if you look at the market PMI number... That increased to 54.1 in October from 53.1 in September. So I guess manufacturing isn't completely depressed right now, but it sounds like it's not doing too well either. And just
1: to put this into some broader context, Tori, the Institute for Supply Management also publishes a non-manufacturing index. Tell us what happened to that this month.
2: Right. Well, so the services index is nine points higher than that factory gauge. And that's the widest differential since 2000. So that just really speaks to how much better the services side of the economy is doing compared to the factory side. Wow. So
1: we really live in a services world, at least for this month.
2: Right. So let's talk about how manufacturing got this way. Uh, let's start short term. How did we get here? Well, Tori, you talked about the strong dollar, right? Right, exactly. We've, we've seen the dollar appreciating and that makes our goods more expensive for people abroad who want to buy manufactured products.
3: Right. And one of the reasons why the dollar has been so strong recently is because other economies around the world aren't doing that well. And so you see this real slowdown in global demand, and that means a smaller market for American manufacturers.
2: And then we've also seen the energy sector kind of throw a wrench in the manufacturing industry as well. When oil prices plunge, it means that oil companies don't really need to buy more heavy equipment. They don't need to invest in more equipment to to be able to access that oil or energy or whatever they're mining for. Um, so it hurts the factories that produce that stuff. What about longer term, Dan?
1: It's facing issues of technology. It's facing issues of cost. You know we've got this global supply chain happening where a manufacturing company might happen to be headquartered in the United States, but the components for their product are manufactured in one country, they're assembled in a second, then shipped to a third for export. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that American exporters are dead or American manufacturers are dead. It may mean they're not doing the manufacturing and the exporting from the U.S.
3: I'm wondering, why do we care about manufacturing so much in the first place if our future is in services? Part
1: of it, this iconic grip it's got on the American imagination, you know, Henry Ford and the tremendous industrialization we saw in waves. The 19th century, then again, the conversion of auto plants during World War II to produce bombers and tanks and planes that became the so-called arsenal of democracy. I think it's like farming in some ways. It has this grip on people's psyche, this view of how they feel about the country they're in and the world they're in. Some of this services stuff can sometimes seem a little ephemeral.
2: Right, right. Well, and to give you guys some context, manufacturing now accounts for about 12% of GDP. In 1955, it was almost 30%. So a big drop there. But I think to help answer your question, Aki, we should bring on someone who really knows a lot more about the manufacturing industry. But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: What do traders want? To limit risk, access every opportunity, and trade on a level playing field. Nadex Binary Options let you set your maximum profit and loss before the trade, so your risk is always limited. Find opportunities in multiple markets, stock indices, commodities, forex, even economic numbers, and Bitcoin, all from one account and platform. Nadex is a CSTC-regulated exchange with transparency, free market data, and fairness guaranteed. Innovations the financial industry needs, and Nadex already has. That's why we think binary options are the future of trading. And it's here now at NADEX.com. Futures, options, and swaps trading involves risk and may not be appropriate for all investors.
2: Well, since none of us on this show have actually held a manufacturing job, we have a surprise guest on the line to share her firsthand experiences. Hi, Mom. Hi, Tori. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. Thanks for joining us.
4: Oh you're welcome. Glad that I could do it.
2: Me too. We wanted to talk to you because we thought you would just have really great personal experience with the manufacturing industry and we just wanted to learn a little bit more about it from you. So to start how long have you worked in manufacturing? Well
4: I've been in manufacturing basically all my life, and we're going to say that's roughly uh, 43 years I've been in manufacturing. I went into manufacturing right after I graduated from high school.
2: And has that been in North Carolina the whole time? Yes, it
4: has. Debbie, you've had a number of
3: jobs, right? Tori was telling us that you've worked at a a bunch of different factories before Uh you actually um, started working at your current company.
4: Yes. I went into uh, the uh, manufacturing field was in 1972. I went into furniture and I worked in furniture for a few years and then I switched over and went into the uh, hosiery textile area. I did that and I was probably in the hosiery textile area about 15 years. Then. I decided to venture out and try something different, and I went into uh, working with a, a company that did security systems. I was with that company about 13, or 14 years. After I left there, I went on another little adventure, and I worked at a hospital, and uh, I did two uh, different things at that hospital. I, I, one area, I worked in the cafeteria, and then another area is I worked within the hospital it, itself, and another area doing housekeeping and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But then after I left there, I went back into the the manufacturing field and I went into automotive. I worked there for about two years and then now I am working in uh, heavy equipment, hydraulic maintenance.
1: So Deb, one of the things we've talked about on this show is not just how manufacturing has changed, but how proportionally it accounts for a smaller share of the American workforce than in the past. Yes,
4: it really does.
1: Have you noticed that play out in your life and in the careers of your colleagues?
4: Uh, oh, yes, especially the area that Toy was born and raised in. It's a little small rural area. And Hickory, North Carolina. Every, it is a very important part because uh, that is the main uh, source of the majority of the people's income there, especially the people my age. And maybe the next generation down. That was basically the thing they done. They went to they went to school. They graduated from high school. They got married. They they got a job. They got married. They had children. And back in two thousand eight nine, whenever the uh, job market really dropped. I have, I've seen, personally, a lot of people lose their homes, lose everything they had because they they lost their job. At a, at a point when Tori was still in high school, I lost my job, and I was without a job for several months without a job. Thankfully, we had a place to stay, but I've seen a lot of people lose their homes, and it was... Basically because of the furniture we in the area that we live in- uh is a big furniture market area, and a lot of the furniture companies had uh quit had closed their doors moved to uh to mexico china wherever and people didn't have jobs, and they was a lot of those people that worked there for all their life i mean sometimes some people had worked there thirty five years that's the only job they ever had.
1: Well, thank goodness we're past the depth of 2008, 2009, but on the ground, how much of a substantial, or if any, return to pre-2008 has there been? Have most of the people who you mentioned found other jobs, have jobs at those same places come back, or have new employers moved in?
4: Well, there's some new companies have moved in. Not very many of the old factories have moved back. There's a few that have came back, but mostly everybody else has went to uh, another field, like, and also the textile, the hosiery business, that really dropped during that time. And, uh, we really don't have a lot of textiles and hosiery around here anymore, but a lot of places offered their people to go to school and, and we had a program during the, with the, uh, unemployment commission that, uh, the employment commission that we could go to school if you, if you chose to, to learn a new trade. And a lot of people did that, but, and then there's, there's others that just, I mean, they didn't do, they didn't do anything, you know. So right now they're still out there trying to, to find a job.
2: I think, Mom, it'd be really interesting to hear. Sort of what a typical day for you is like, because I'm not sure that too many people know, you know, what it's like to work in a factory. Um, what's it What's it like for you as a as a factory worker?
4: In my position, I'm a kind of a supervisor, overseer over a production area in the in the company that I work for, and I just have to go in every day, and I've got to make sure that all of the uh, I have all the the uh, pro- the supplies that I need to make our our product. Uh, in the meantime, while I'm doing this, I'm also running different kind of machinery that we have to to do, and it's constant all the time. Something to do. It's it's fast paced, and you've got and if you can't be fast with your job, you're not going to make it there long because they want people that that have speed and are interested in learning and want to learn.
3: You know, Debbie, it was so interesting listening to you talk about all the different jobs that you've held, that you moved from furniture to textiles to autos to now heavy equipment, because that's really a story of the shifts in American manufacturing over the last few decades. You can really see this move from uh, less profitable, lower value added um, industries to uh, something like heavy equipment that's a lot more profitable and involves um, higher technology. I guess. But I was wondering, did you ever have to go back to school to transition between these jobs or get additional
4: training? Personally, myself, I haven't, but I have known people that have went back to school so they can learn how to run uh, machines and stuff.
1: And when they've returned from school, have they kept their employment at the same place?
4: Yes. And they usually get a, benefit, uh, a real nice pay raise when they, after they complete their schooling because that's why they send them to uh, school to learn how to operate a very high-tech machine. Just a common person coming off the street can't run it, and you have to go to school to, uh, to know how to uh, maintain it, how to operate it, and everything about it.
1: Deb, we've been wrestling with two competing narratives. One says that manufacturing in the U.S. is back, there's this manufacturing renaissance, then on the other side of the fence you've got a school of thought that says manufacturing's really history in the U.S. So from your perspective, which is true?
4: Well, from my perspective I believe it it could be in the middle. Uh, Right now I think manufacturing is still a part of our lives and in and it will be for a while, but I think further on down the road, say, like, by the time maybe Tori's 40 or, or so. Oh, God. Maybe. When <laughs> maybe is that maybe. exactly? <laughs> <laughs> How, when is that exactly? Oh, let's say 15 or 20 years. I'm not going to put right that on the spot. We'll say 15 or 20 years <laughs> down the road. Uh I could, I could see it phasing out. Well,
2: Mom. Yes. Thank you so much. Does well, anyone else have any other questions?
3: Debbie, I have one more question. How, on a scale of one to ten, how proud are you of Tori for being an internationally famous podcast star?
4: That would be a one hundred and ten. <laughs> I am very, too, very proud of Tori. Of We're really proud of her. Here, I too. am so glad that she decided to go to college and do what she does and not be living there because the, her generation the ones that live there they're falling in the same the same mode that their parents and their grandparents are there out here trying to find a factory job you know and that's that's one thing i'm proud of about Tori. but when Tori was a little girl i came home one day and she said hmm when i grow up i'm not working for peanuts and i said what and she said i'm not working for peanuts when i grow up and <laughs> She followed her dream and her goal, and I am very proud of her.
1: We're coming up to annual review time here. I'll keep the the peanuts thing in mind for Tori. I mean, just that laugh alone is worth being proud of.
4: I love it. I don't believe there's another laugh in the world like that laugh.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's been a real privilege to have you on the show, Deb.
4: It's been a privilege to talk to you all, too. All right, Mom. Love you. Thank you. Love you, too. And talk to you later.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye, Tim. So I guess uh, to answer your question, Aki, that you posed at the beginning of the show, I would say yes, manufacturing does still matter in America. Thanks again for listening to Bloomberg's Benchmark. We will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And a very special thank you to Debbie.
3: Let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter at akiito 7 at Tori Stilwell, and Daniel Moss, D.C.
1: Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Hopefully we can top this one.